Welcome to Theory of Indivisibility, solutions-focused evolutionary analysis of our social, economic, and political systems delivered to you in short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Sunjata. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so happy to be here with you again. Uh, it's been a, a longer uh, break in between release of the previous episode and this episode because my children were out of school for three weeks. They go to a monastery school where they do four quarters of nine weeks on and three weeks off. So they get three week breaks and primarily they were with me during the day. So as you can imagine, I didn't have enough time. I didn't have much time to do research and everything that just goes into putting this podcast together as well as having the time and quiet to actually record. So I didn't leave you and I'm back and I'm excited to be back and I'm excited to share this next episode and I'm so excited that you're here with me. During season one of Theory of Indivisibility, we are exploring the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to the following social systems. Power over, patriarchy, religion, ownership, capitalism, democracy, racism, and education. On today's episode, we're going to explore patriarchy. In the previous episode, Power Part 3, I concluded a three-part series analysis of power with the focus on how and why we live in a society built on the need for humans to wield power and control over one another. I shared that I believe that social systems rooted in power over and control are the weeds that perpetuate divisiveness and societal ills like poverty, homelessness, war, crime, mental illness, poor health, substance abuse, etc., I also shared my theory of indivisibility in detail for the first time, and I provided what I believe to be a solution that would eradicate power over and control dynamics from society and set the foundation for creating new social systems rooted in sustainability, liberation, and unconditional love. The show is available on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you listen to podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new release. And if you like what you've heard thus far, please leave a rating and a review. It helps attract more listeners to the show, and I would really, really appreciate it. Join us in our Facebook group, Live Indivisible Community Dialogue, for dialogue about the show and to post your pics if you participate in the call to action activities. And just note, there's a new name. Live Indivisibility Community Dialogue is a new name for that group. Thank you to my patrons for your ongoing support in helping to cover the cost to produce this show and to make it more sustainable. It really means a lot to me. I don't want to bombard you all with advertisements so your patronage is an alternative. If you get value from listening and you'd like to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. Quote. 
The type of man that just about every woman has dealt with at one point or another is prideful, egotistical, untrustworthy, immature, selfish, greedy, and emotionally unstable. In my opinion, the typical man is a liar and a cheater, and that's only scratching the surface of his character. I wonder how and when men became this way. End quote. That scathing assessment of men was from Greta D. Armand, co-author of a book titled Life Interruptions, Sisters Turn and Take Your Journey, which is a compilation of short stories by six African-American women who share stories from defining moments in their lives. I know for a fact that all men aren't what she describes. I also know that many are and that many women would agree with her statements. The question that Greta asks at the end of her quote, I wonder how and when men became this way, is the perfect segue into part one of today's episode, where we explore the evolutionary origins of patriarchy. I believe that this exploration will give us some context for Greta's assessment of what she calls the typical man. Now, please know this is not a man bashing show. In fact, I hope that you'll learn by the end of this episode that patriarchy isn't first and foremost about men. First and foremost, it is a social system with certain rules and norms that privilege men, men who conform to its strict set of rules, that is. So what exactly is patriarchy? Sociologists define patriarchy as a social system in which men hold primary power and predominate in roles of political leadership, moral authority, social privilege, and control of property. Let's revisit our concentric circles diagram that I introduced you to in a previous episode for a visual explanation because I think that it's important to keep in mind that everything is a system, every system is always changing and evolving, and that every system is interconnected and interdependent. A concentric circles diagram consists of circles with a common center beginning with a large outer circle and a series of smaller circles that fit within one another. Concentric circles provide us with a chronological perspective for how systems evolved. The larger circles consist of systems that preceded the smaller circles in terms of their arrival in our universe. In episode two, I shared the scientific evidence that details the evolution of our universe and the subsequent evolution of the natural systems that evolved to support life on Earth, including the life of humans. A concentric circles diagram of our natural systems would evolve like this. First, the universe evolved. So visually, the large outer circle in our diagram is labeled universe. From the universe, the galaxies evolved, our galaxy, the Milky Way, being one of them. From the galaxies, our solar system evolved. From our solar system, the planet Earth evolved. From the planet Earth, our ecosystem evolved. And from our ecosystem, humans evolved. It's important to note that it took several billion years for all of this to, unf to unfold and that all of these systems are still evolving. After humans evolved, human-made systems began to evolve. In episode four, I introduced you to human-made systems which include our social systems and industrial systems. A concentric circles diagram of our human-made systems and how we arrived at patriarchy would evolve like this. First, humans evolved. From humans, our social systems evolved. From our social systems, power over evolved. And from power over, patriarchy evolved. 
Just like natural systems, human-made systems are interconnected, interdependent of one another, and always evolving. Social systems were and are created by humans as a means of communicating with one another and supporting each other's safety and existence. You can find the diagrams that I mentioned in the show notes for episode six at patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. Now that we have a systems level perspective on how patriarchy evolved, let's zoom in to discuss what factors influence this evolution at the people level. For the first approximately 290,000 years, our Homo sapien ancestors roamed the earth. They lived egalitarian in small hunter-gatherer bands of 25 to 50 people. They shared everything, and while there may have been distinct roles between males and females, they both shared equal social power, decision-making power, and equal sexual freedom. Anthropologists believe that patriarchy evolved as a result of the agricultural revolution 10 to 12,000 years ago. So for the first 97% of human existence, our ancestors lived in cooperative-based egalitarian societies. The physical demands of early agriculture and the ability to create more children due to sedentary living cleared the way for men to become the producers out on the farms and the decision makers in council meetings of early tribal societies. Over time, the role of women became valued less as they reared children and maintained the household, and this led to the evolution of patriarchy, men having power over women. In episode three, we discussed in detail how power over and control dynamics evolved in societies during this same time period, and therefore power over and control dynamics are at the root of patriarchy. Marriage as we know it today didn't exist prior to patriarchy. With the advent of agriculture, Humans had the ability to stay in one place for the first time, cultivate the land, and accumulate resources. This made paternity important for the first time because men needed to be able to pass down their land and possessions to their heirs. The control of women evolved to be a necessity under these conditions because only by controlling them can it be certain who the father of her offspring is. So women existed under the control of their fathers and husbands whose duty it was to monitor and control her social and sexual life. So basically, out of necessity and based on the conditions needed to survive during that time, patriarchal societies evolved to become societies of power over control and separation. And it is from these social conditions that the system of patriarchy emerged. So what are your takeaways from that? Any aha moments? I think this gives us some context for an answer to Greta's question of, I wonder how and when men became this way. But what about her other statements that the type of man that just about every woman has dealt with at one point or another is prideful, egotistical, untrustworthy, immature, selfish, greedy, and emotionally unstable? In my opinion, the typical man is a liar and a cheater, and that's only scratching the surface of his character. Those sentiments by Greta provide a great transition to part two of the show, where we'll discuss the current complexities of patriarchy. In an article titled The History of Patriarchy, L. Bow states... Begin quote. Although there is a substantial element in patriarchal systems of males having power and primacy over females, 
It is fundamentally a dominance hierarchy, one which detrimentally affects men also, particularly those who are not at the pinnacle of the hierarchy. One of the things that makes it difficult to speak about patriarchy or any other system to a mostly North American audience is that the capacity to see systems as distinct from the individuals that live within and are affected by them has been systematically rooted out of most people's awareness. Instead, everything is seen as an individual issue with only individual solutions. In other words, although it is difficult for many people to readily grasp this, patriarchy is not about men as individuals, per se. In fact, women may play a significant role in maintaining the social system of patriarchy as well, in part by helping to enforce the rules of the so-called man box, end quote. So I'm going to end the quote there, but I'm going to pick it back up for some more in just a moment. But I want to just quickly highlight how I appreciate that she points out the challenges that a lot of people face with seeing the system's effect on individuals. In America, this is especially hard because we grew up with the message of rugged individualism. Anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, do better, think positive, etc., and when I get into conversations with friends or online about these topics, a lot of people always say, but every individual can make a choice. Like, look at you. Look at me. We made positive choices, good choices. We chose to do better. Those people who didn't, that's their fault. And what I try to explain to them is that it's so much more complex than that because we live in a society where everything is interconnected and interdependent. And I know that's really hard for people to wrap their minds around for the reasons that the author, uh, L stated here. And it's something that I cover in detail in episode two when I talk about systems thinking. And it really helped me when I learned systems thinking to really be able to make that connection. It also reminds me of a comment that a friend of mine, Pam Iverson, posted recently on one of my Facebook posts. Pam stated that there is no do better without dismantling the systems that don't work for everyone and creating ones that do. You see, Pam perfectly articulates there the way that systems thinkers think. And we understand that because these systems were created and designed by humans, our, our human social systems, then we could also create new ones. And we can design out all of the problems that current that we continue to see, and we can create new, new systems where those problems no longer exist. So as Pam said, there is no think positive, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do better without dismantling the systems that don't work for everyone. Like we literally live in a society with social systems that are designed intentionally to privilege some and disprivilege others. So for me, there should be no surprise that we continue to have the societal ills that we do. And it goes way beyond just doing better. I hope that makes sense. Elbow, the author of the article that I'm referencing here, she went on to explain what she meant by the man box by referencing another article on the topic that I'll, that I'll also include in the show notes. Begin quote. According to Glickman and others, the man box is a set of rigid expectations that define what a real man is. A real man is strong and stoic. He doesn't show emotions other than anger and excitement. He is a breadwinner. He is heterosexual. He is able-bodied. He plays or watches sports. He is the dominant participant in every exchange. He is a firefighter, 
a lawyer, a CEO. He is a man's man. This quote-unquote real man, as defined by the man box, represents what is supposedly normative and acceptable within the tightly controlled performance of American male masculinity. He dominates our movies and television. He defines what we expect from our political leaders. He is the archetypal sports star. He is our symbol for what is admirable and honorable in American men. And if he happens to get aggressive, belligerent, and violent sometimes, well, that's just the price of real masculinity. And to be clear, although the man box defines and enforces what is considered to be quote-unquote real manhood, women are as culpable as men in the policing and the enforcing of its harsh rules. When American men attempt to express masculinity in more diverse ways, it can often be the women in their lives who enforce them back into the box. This can be due to fears of economic and societal isolation or out of a refusal by those women to engage in the kind of self-reflective emotional discourses that exiting the man box can trigger. End quote. This article really, really hit hard. It was like stepping back and taking a 10,000-foot view of what it's meant to operate within that quote-unquote man box or act like a man box or what a lot of men call man laws. And for me, as you know, a cisgender heterosexual male who's lived in that space and operated in that space and learned to abide by those laws, this, that article, again, it just really... It just really, you know, it hit home. And some of the things that I thought about, you know, that that men do to police one another, uh, especially um, is especially prevalent around homosexuality. I think about more more recently in in hip hop culture, there was this tendency for for men to say pause or no homo as a way of saying something, but reiterating the fact that they're not they're not gay or homosexual. So, for example, a, a guy may say, man, that dude was strong. Pause. Or a guy may say, man, yo, he looks real good. No homo. So it's like any type of term that could be used or misinterpreted in some way, you know, it's like just to reiterate their masculinity or whatever. It's like, you know, it, it became like a cool, trendy thing to say and do. And I don't think a lot of a lot of men realize how offensive that is and how discriminatory that is to homosexual people. And it's something that I never did just because I've always been aware and conscious of, of these things, um, at least since I became an adult. Um, when this this came out, I never participated in that. Um, another thing that I that I hear uh, some of my friends, some of my peers will say, uh, man, that's gay. Like if if they think something's whack or corny or you know whatever, they'll just say they'll say that's gay as an as another way of saying that. So again, you're taking something that is an identity of a of a of a person of a lot of people, something they self-identify with that speaks to who they are, their humanity, and you're basically giving you know making it synonymous with you know um, saying that something is whack. Again, I don't. These same people, because I've, I've actually called this, the, uh, I've called some people out on, on doing this, some of my peers. And the same people will say, you know, I'm not homophobic or I'm not trying to be discriminatory or hateful. But they don't realize how ingrained these things are. And they just do them without even thinking. 
So another example is you're a faggot. Now, this is the one I grew up with. You know, growing up, when I was a little kid, people called people faggots on the regular in my community where I grew up, in my neighborhood, in my school, et cetera. And, you know, no one wanted to be a faggot, you know, because a faggot meant you were weak, you were soft, you know, you were, quote unquote, like a girl. And it's like, these are things that we didn't want to be. So, again, I just, as an adult, I just think about, like, the psychological, you know, damage that that does to individuals who happen to be homosexual. Or when, when, when men said, you know, you acting like a girl, like, what does that say to girls and, and their self-worth and their value? Like, all these, the, 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 the messaging behind this language that I don't think a lot of people really gave thought to and how it perpetuates, you know, oppression and divisiveness that I'm so aware of now that I still notice that a lot of people my age aren't. So I, I found this article to be very interesting. I, I, I know that it kind of highlights these things. And I believe that any, you know, any, any man that reads it is going to, depending on where they are and, and their mindset, is going to either offend them and cause a lot of cognitive dissonance or it's going to help them become more aware. And again, if you're interested in this article, it's in the show notes. To assist us with analyzing and synthesizing the current complexities of patriarchy, we're going to create a cluster map. Cluster maps are an important tool because they help us to see the interconnections, interdependencies, and dynamic complexities of the elements that make up a system. To make a cluster map, you draw a large circle, and then you write all of the elements that make up whatever system you're exploring. Literally, whatever comes to mind when you think about patriarchy, for example, because that's what we're focusing on now, of course, you just write that down. All right. So like when you're doing a cluster map, you don't don't think too much. Just say, all right, patriarchy. And what comes to you, whatever comes to your mind when you think about patriarchy, just write it down. So as a call to action, I want to invite you to make your own patriarchy cluster map as well. It will really help you learn to diagnose and understand the complexities within systems. So pause the podcast and grab a piece of paper and something to write with. You can also do this mentally if you'd like to practice before, and hear, before you hear mine, if you're driving or doing chores or whatever you do while listening. And when you're done, share it with us on patreon.com forward slash live indivisible or in our Facebook group, Live Indivisible Community Dialogue. So my cluster map of patriarchy includes the following elements. Competition, conditional love, religion, debate. Homophobia, hashtag me too, sexism, gender binary, intolerance, overconsumption, hierarchy, misogyny, distrust, capitalism, egotistical, liar, ownership and control, toxic masculinity, violence, stigmatizing, authoritarianism, Gender inequality, selfish, feminism, cheater, cruelty, greed, and power over. Next, let's discuss some of the interconnections and interdependencies that I was able to draw and how they apply to some of the current complexities of patriarchy. You probably noticed that I included most of the behaviors that Greta Diarmond used as adjectives to describe the quote-unquote typical man 
and her scathing description of the type of man that she believes that most women have dealt with. I believe that this exercise will further answer her question of why and when did men become this way and provide us some context for why those behaviors are systemic. So when you visit the show notes and you take a look at my cluster map, you'll notice that it's extremely chaotic. There's lines crisscrossing and going all across the map, connecting several of these uh, subsystems or elements of patriarchy. And I'm sure that yours looks the same if you chose to participate in the call to action. I'm going to focus on some of the current hot topics and just tease out some of the connections that I made. So the first one that I want to discuss is I want to start with toxic masculinity and discuss some of the connections. Before I discuss some of the connections, I want to read to you what toxic masculinity means. The phrase is derived from studies that focus on violent behavior perpetrated by men, and this is key, is designed to describe not masculinity itself, but a form of gender behavior that results when expectations of, quote unquote, what it means to be a good man go wrong. The Good Men Project defines it this way. Toxic masculinity is a narrow and repressive description of manhood designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural ideal of manliness, where strength is everything while emotions are weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly, quote-unquote, feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as a, quote-unquote, man can be taken away. So let's look at some of the lines that I drew from toxic masculinity on my cluster map. So I connected toxic masculinity to violence, to liar, to feminism, to ownership and control, to hierarchy, to power over, to homophobia, and to distrust. And I probably could have connected it to more, but this is just, you know, a place to start. So just based on the, the description of, of it that I just read, you can probably understand why I made a lot of these connections. Um, you know, one of the, the things I want to point out, again, speaking to what Greta um, used as a descriptor of men, is when we talk about liars. So one of the things that toxic masculinity is all about is that whole hypersexual persona. And one of the this, one of the, I guess, um, notches in, in the belt of men um, that a lot of men, not all, but a lot of men over the years, you know, hype up how many sexual partners they've had. And in order to keep that going, a lot of men had to lie to the women in their lives so that they can go out and cheat and, you know, just kind of be that quote unquote man's man and, you know, satisfy those those hypersexual tendencies. Now, this is a rap that, you know, has generally been given to like an all-man conversation when I hear people talking about it, as I've heard my entire, uh, you know, life pretty much. And what I've learned as an adult, though, is that it just doesn't fit every man. You know, it, it fits some men and some men it doesn't. Uh, it's like the brand of what a man is, but that that's a generalization and it just doesn't apply to all men. Does it apply to some? Absolutely. And it also does not apply to some. And I think that level of balance is something that, you know, needs to be brought to the conversation. 
But I will say this. I have no doubt that Greta and many other women have run into men who embody what toxic masculinity is. The next element that I want to discuss is the hashtag Me Too. So hashtag Me Too is a movement against sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I want to just say that, again, as an adult, unfortunately, one of the things that I've come into the realization of is that I would say in my life alone, like one in three women that I know have had these type of conversations with um, have been have experienced sexual assault or sexual harassment in some way. And actually, when I say one in three women, I'm speaking more to like um, have been molested. And there's there's very few women that I talk to that have not been sexually molested. And I think that is so horrible. And, you know, that's what that's part of the reason that the Me Too movement, you know, came about, you know, women feeling empowered to speak out and speak up, you know, for for really the first time, because a lot of women, um, well, for the first time in such in such large numbers. And I know that there's been some pushback against the movement because some people think that. Um, some people, some women have taken it too far or some women have used it to ruin the careers of, of some men, etc. And for me, that's just a part of the whole complexity of the entire issue. It's just a part of it. So let's look at the connections that I was that I made to the Me Too movement and my cluster map. So I drew a line from Me Too to violence. I drew a line from Me Too to feminism. I drew a line to stigmatism or stigmatization, I drew a line to misogyny, and I drew a line to capitalism. And, you know, again, capitalism, just think about how the pressures of capitalism force so many women to stay silent on this issue for fear of losing their jobs. Because capitalism requires for people to go out and work a job so they can pay their bills and meet their basic needs, so many people have... So many people remain uh, silenced on issues that fall within that patriarchal and power over realm because it's tied to their livelihood. So, again, that's just one of those complexities um, that's rooted in the interconnections of and interdependencies of all these various elements. Next, I want to discuss greed. And again, greed is one of the um, behaviors that Greta brought to the forefront that I want to discuss in looking at my cluster map. So I drew a line from greed to overconsumption. I drew a line from greed to selfish, to competition, to liar, to cheating, and to capitalism. And again, I could have drawn more and we could talk about more. But just looking at these, I know some of them are, are self, self-explanatory. Um, but Again, for me, the, the, how it ties to uh, patriarchy and then ultimately to capitalism and every other system that we're going to discuss during this season, um, you know, it's very telling. So when you think about how our economic model is rooted in capitalism and you think about what capitalism is all about, which is growth, 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 and capitalism rewards people who have the most resources. That's how we take that's how we take note of the winners and losers. Resources being things like land, property, or money. So capitalism requires people to compete, right? And competition 
brings out selfishness because you have to think about yourself primarily first and foremost when you're competing. And also competition brings out lying and cheating because at the end of the day, we all know that there are plenty of people who've gotten ahead in our economic system over the generations who did so by lying and cheating. We also know that through the accumulation of resources, you know, there you, you get overconsumption. And overconsumption leads to an imbalance where you have some people who are privileged and then you have a lot of people who are disprivileged. It also impacts the environment. I could go on and on making these connections. Now let's take a look at misogyny and some of the connections that I drew um, from there. So first, let's define misogyny. Misogyny is the hatred of contempt for or ingrained prejudice against women or girls. Misogyny manifests in numerous ways, including social exclusion, sex discrimination, hostility, androcentrism, patriarchy, male privilege, belittling of women, disenfranchisement of women, violence against women, and sexual objectification. So let's discuss some of the lines that I drew in my cluster map uh, from misogyny. So I drew a line to violence. I drew a line to stig stigmatization. I drew a line to liar, to cheater, to conditional love, to sexism, to homophobia, to capitalism, and to religion. And when I think about religion, I think about sex discrimination and one of the and all the stigma that has taken place over the years because of that sex discrimination. And what I mean by that is, you know, for women, based on the religion that I grew up in, which is Christianity, we were always taught that really a woman's uh, role with sex was only for bearing children or, or the purpose of sex for women was to bear children and to please their husband. It was only like sex was supposed to be something that was pleasing to men. And it was something that was supposed to be like a duty for women. So therefore, a lot of women were, you know, sexually oppressed in a lot of ways. So, you know, that's just one of the things that I think about, as well as sexual objectification. You know, when you say that a woman's role for sex, you like literally put it into a box. You're objectifying them in so many ways. And again, we've seen how this has played out and how it connects to, you know, things like the hashtag Me Too movement, where men feel like they can, you know, wield that power and control or ownership and control over women. And of course, we know that the ownership and control of women is rooted is what patriarchy uh, was rooted in. So all these things connect. And one of the ways that this plays out in my life and one of the weird places that it shows up the most is in is in hip hop music, because I'm such a huge fan of hip hop. And I want to state up front that I know it's not all hip hop music, but a lot of the mainstream hip hop, a lot of the most popular hip hop is just dripping in misogyny. And I didn't really recognize this until probably within the last five to 10 years when misogyny started, you know, coming into the public discourse. And it was a blind spot for me. But once it was brought to my attention, I couldn't deny it. And it was something that I that I've grappled with ever since. And there's been times where I thought to myself, maybe I should just stop listening to hip hop music. But then there's times where because you know, hip hop kind of gives you insights into, you know, how young people think and what people or just what people are thinking in general. 
Um, Because a lot of people will say hip hop is like the CNN of the streets. And in a lot of ways, it does tell the story of what's going on in inner city urban environments. And it gives me someone who's a social sustainability activist, someone who like listens to and, and, and observes the patterns of how people live. It gives me insight and it gives me context for the social uh, climate. With that being said, uh, I do have some ideas of ways that we can help young people and hip hop artists be more aware that I hope that uh, I'll be able to, um, you know, bring to the forefront in the future. And I hope that as more people listen to podcasts like this or other people speak on these issues, that more people, more people who are hip hop artists will become aware and conscious and of not, you know, using misogyny and not objectifying women in their music. So here's the dynamic complexity in it all. Everything connects in my cluster map, either directly or indirectly, meaning each of these elements depend on one another to exist. That means that that systems like religion and capitalism that are staples in our society are also connected to and dependent on patriarchy, which gave way to sexism, violence, misogyny, sexual assault, conditional love, etc., Let that sink in for a moment. What conclusions do you draw from that? How does it make you feel? I want to hear from you. So let us know by leaving a comment in our Facebook group, Live Indivisible Community Dialogue. You can also email me at dr.sunjata at gmail.com. That's dr.sunjata at gmail.com. Let's transition to part three and close out this episode by looking at how my theory of indivisibility applies to patriarchy. My theory of indivisibility is rooted in the belief that we need to move away from social systems rooted in power over and control of others like patriarchy and transition to social systems rooted in power with dynamics like collaboration, agency, and consent that are rooted in sustainability, liberation, and unconditional love. Some examples of how people have already begun to move away from patriarchy include some that are evident because of the activism work done by previous generations, like, for example, the women's suffrage movement that fought to give women of European descent equal rights and the right to vote. So the reason why I highlighted women of European descent is because when the women's suffrage movement began began in 1848, women of African descent were still not even considered human. They were still enslaved. Um, so the women's suffrage movement began with primarily with women of European descent. Now, there were women of African descent who joined in on the movement uh, adjacent to women of to the most powerful women of European descent. But in small pockets, there were uh, women of African descent who actually worked with some Euro- women of European descent. And they, you know, they did their part as well. There's a um, there's there's something that speaks to this. And the women's a women's suffrage website called Turning Point Suffrage Memorial, and here's what it says, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing. African American women were in a difficult position. Sometimes they worked in their own clubs and suffrage organizations. Sometimes with European American suffragists, African American women did not accept their exclusion from European American suffrage organizations or the racist tactics employed by European American suffragists. In the 20th century, more and more African-American women joined the ranks of suffragists as the movement progressed. 
So one of the most well-known African-American women's rights activists was Sojourner Truth. And an interesting point that I um, learned while looking this up was that the women's suffrage movement started in 1848, and they finally gained the right for women to vote in 1920. Now, again, we're talking about European and American women's right to vote in 1920. But that took 72 years, like seven decades from when they had their first convention and organized and became like this formalized movement in 1848 to 1920, 17 years, 72 years for for that change to take place. So that just kind of speaks to how difficult it is um, to move away from certain uh, things that are ingrained and indoctrinated in people's minds. For the balance of the 1800s and 1900s, women fought for and won access to the right to manage and control the money they earned, own property, own businesses, equal pay for equal work laws were passed, even though we know that that doesn't fully manifest in the world just yet. But laws were passed. Um, and in the 1900s, we began to see women pastors, church leaders, and women CEOs. In more recent times, we've seen same-sex marriage laws be passed, and we've seen more outward expressions of homosexuality and sexual freedom in the media, TV shows, movies, and in the public. We've seen many single-stall public restrooms over the last like three to five years replace gender signs with the words restroom. We've seen the LGBTQ movement evolve to become the LGBTQIAP plus movement. Again, just becoming more inclusive. And that acronym stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, pansexual, plus. And the plus simply means not limited to. Because just like intersex people, asexual people, pansexual people have been stepping up to define who they are, there are more people who don't currently have, literally there's people who exist along the sexuality and gender spectrum who've always existed, but there's no, there's never been a, a, a title or any language to describe them. And these people are finding each other and they're creating organizations and they're sharing experiences and they're realizing, you know what? I'm not alone. There's nothing wrong with me. Like this is literally just who I am. So these movements are so, so important. And the fact that we are here in 2019 and these things have taken place, it just speaks to the progress of the various ways that people are already moving away from patriarchy. I personally didn't even know until like within the last five years that there was a true difference between the terms sex and gender. I've learned that sex refers to one's biological sex they are born with relating to their chromosomes, hormones, genitalia, and reproductive system, etc. So this generally falls into male, female, and intersex. And intersex is another word for people who are born with some form of both genitals of male and female genitalia. Um, You know, for years, like these people have always existed, and for years, no one talked about it. When I was growing up, no one told me that this was normal. And when I was doing research for this show, I learned that a lot of intersex people didn't learn until they were like adults that they were intersex because the doctors at birth would perform surgery to give them uh, just one of those genitalia. And sometimes I've learned in some cases that the parents didn't even know that these doctors were doing these things. So intersex people are very common. I believe I read that it was like one in 200 people are born intersex. I mean, we just people didn't talk about these things. Gender. 
I've learned that gender refers to the identity you choose regardless of your sex, which relates to your societal and cultural portrayal of sexuality and gender. It is a broad spectrum that different that differs from one person to the next. So growing up, most people talked about sex and gender as if they were the same thing. Um, there's a podcast that I heard last year by a woman by the name of Moji Yai, who's from Benin in Africa, and who I've gotten to know because we've both been engaging with liberation and social activism work on several fronts. And in this podcast, Moji shares how in her native African language of Yoruba, that they don't have gendered language. They don't have gendered language like male, female, he, she, boy, girl, man, woman. They don't have language like that. And she said that because of that, the type of language that informs patriarchy and gender-based hierarchy that I grew up thinking was normal, they don't even have. And she said because of that, they were more open to accepting people as individuals as who they were without having to put them into a box of having to show up and act a certain way according to, uh, you know, a social construct of what a quote unquote man should be or a quote unquote woman should be. And they also didn't within that language, it didn't oppress people who didn't fall within those social constructs because those social constructs never existed. I've also read the same things about indigenous peoples of the Americas, some indigenous cultures and people of the Americas. These realizations go against everything I learned about sexuality and gender growing up, and they have opened my mind tremendously. So what is the solution to patriarchy? I hope that with the examples that I've already provided, that you have a sense of hope that we are already moving in the right direction. But I know that there is more that needs to be done. And I think that it needs to start with each of us as individuals choosing to reject any beliefs and teachings that encourages us to judge others who are different from us. I've personally chosen to reject the conditioning I received growing up that men are superior to women. I'm sure that I, I probably still have some blind spots, but I'm constantly listening to women and I'm constantly adjusting. I've also chosen to reject the conditioning that being LGBTQIA+ is morally wrong. I've chosen to reject participating in the policing of the man box or quote unquote man laws, etc. Many American companies outwardly support equal rights for women and LGBTQIA plus people. More so today than ever before. When I drive around Atlanta, I see churches in some areas that explicitly market that they welcome LGBTQIA plus people. So that's definitely a sign that change is happening. To me, liberation from patriarchy means the following. The elimination of the use of moral judgment as a tool to police others. The elimination of male-female as a binary and the acceptance of all gender expressions. The end of gender roles and social enforcement of them through shame and stigma. The acceptance that each individual owns their own sexuality and has the right to express it how they choose without judgment, without judgment and stigma from others. Walking away from religious practices that privilege men, or anyone for that matter, as moral authorities over others. Collaboration-based governance models for businesses and governments. And lastly, it means collaboration-based economies that meet the basic needs of all people. All over America and around the world, people are choosing power with ideals and practices 
and rejecting systems rooted in power over and control dynamics like patriarchy. We still have a long way to go on the road towards sustainability, liberation, and unconditional love, but the process has long been underway. A primary driver for patriarchy becoming so systematically ingrained in society for the past 10 to 12,000 years, and one of the biggest obstacles to fully eradicating it is religion. We'll explore why next time on Theory of Indivisibility. Theory of Indivisibility is written and produced by me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and share it with friends on social media. It really helps a lot. It takes 20 to 30 hours of research, writing, producing, and editing to complete each show. So if you like what you hear, you can show your support in helping to make this show more sustainable by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That is also where you'll find show notes and resources for each episode. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I love y'all. Peace. Visionary mind frame got me open in the ears. I pause for a second, listen to the words that I spit. So can you feel it? Lose focus and you start to see the vibration. Hitting every nation, check your foundation. A matter of energy got me circling for the world around me. Stand strong, holding the position I belong. Finish clearing the past and then you move on to a new way to go. You're engaging the flow, the critical mass. Got a brother running so fast, but will I slow down? The wheels and the bus go round and round. Sitting thinking how I'm living, what the long and now I'm coming to a point where I'm bridging the gap. I reckon. Living with the interpersonal ethic emerging to another level with my culture. Open your mind. Vision no time. Open your mind to this. New vision no time. Open your mind to this. New vision no time. Open your mind to this. New vision no time. Open your mind to this. Theme song New Vision is performed by Achilles the Cosmonaut. Find more from Achilles the Cosmonaut on your favorite music streaming app.